Okay. We know that Christianity is filled with paradoxes. Here's what a paradox means. Real simple. Two things which seem and are, in fact, contradictory to the way that we can think about them, but that are, in fact, both true. Here's an example. God is three and one. He cannot be both three and one, not truly. What we do in our human inclination is, we say, well, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is three, and so what we're gonna do is we're gonna reduce the truth of his oneness because really what it is is they just really like each other a lot. So they like agree with each other, so they're like in harmony with each other. And we're gonna call that oneness. Well, that's reducing the truth of his oneness. There's a deeper truth to be had. Or we do it the other way around, right? And this is called modalism, and you find a lot of people do this. And what they'll do is they'll say, well, really, God's just one, and he manifests as Father or Son or Holy Spirit. But he can only manifest as one at a time. So you see, now that's reducing the truth of his threeness. Now here's what's fascinating about that example. The mathematicians in here know that you can add dimensions mathematically, right? So we live in height, width, depth, and time. And in those four dimensions, three and one are not. You're either three or you're one. But if you add a fifth dimension, and we as Christians do that, don't we? We say there's a spiritual dimension to life. So we're adding another dimension. When you add a fifth dimension, here's what happens. You can actually be three and one. Mathematically, you can be that. Now this is true. So you see what the, th the thing is. Don't reduce the truth in order to try and find some reconciliation push the truth of both sides of a paradox until you begin to get to transcendence on it. Or let me put it another way. When we as human beings, when God gives us a paradox, he's doing it because he's saying, there's two things that are true and they seem contradictory to you, but if you'll push the truth of both of them, it'll help you live right. Example, God is, or Jesus is fully man, fully God. When you really understand what it means to be fully God, we're gonna talk about it a little bit today, I mean fully man, it means something incredibly significant, and he has to be truly and fully only man. But then he's truly and fully only God too, right? And only might be a wrong word, but you get the point. Okay, I'm trying to not reduce truth. Here's another one, predestination free will. This is another one we're gonna be hitting on today, and here's why. Last week, we did the ultimate free will thing. We prayed. If predestination is true, if God is sovereign and he's totally in control, why do you have to pray? I mean, he's gonna do what he's gonna do, he's gonna do it no matter what, so why pray, right? And you could come up with a logic like this, and people do this all the time. They miss theology when they do this, but here's what they do, they say, well, the thing is, is, you know, God gave us the illusion of free will, and so what we have to do is say it because, but it really, it all falls apart, it's just dumb. The truth is, is when you pray, you have to live in a free will mentality. Now you can also keep in mind, and you always have to keep in mind that God is sovereign, right? But here's why you have to stay in a free will mentality. Your prayers matter. They make a difference. This is not just some rote formula routine. He's not asking you to do something that doesn't mean anything. He's asking you to do something that means something not just significant, but critical. Truly, if you're going to pray properly, you have to understand that absent your prayers, God isn't going to do that. Now, predestination tells you, but he is. But that's why you have to push the truth of both sides. You have to understand that when you're praying, God has asked you to pray not for, your, not for just some arbitrary reason, some fake reason. And when you get into the deep theology on this, that's literally what people will say. Well, it's just illusory. No, it's real. When he's telling us to pray, to stand in the gap, to do these things, this makes an absolute real difference in the world, period. And you have to pray that way. Otherwise, you're not praying. You're just pushing some button and checking some box, okay? You have to take your free will and say, I know what your will is and I know what the world's doing and your will is better than the world and I am asking you to do your will here in this world. I'm praying according to your will, what you want done. And unless I do that, you don't do it. You have to know that. But having done that last week, we come to this week. And this week is going to be all about the sovereignty of God. See what he's doing here? Right at the beginning of the year, he's setting us up for who he is. 
and who he wants us to be. And here's what he wants us to be. He wants us to understand something about his sovereignty. I am completely and massively and totally in control to a depth and in a way that you have no clue about. Period. And if you really think you do have a clue about that, then let me ask you a couple of questions and let's just see whether or not we really think God is in control. Okay? Because how about this one? Do you ever worry about anything? Anybody? Let me, come on, let's do it, okay? You ever worry about anything? Okay, well then, you, you know, now there's a way of arguing. You get semantic on me and say, well, you know, blah, 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 but, but can we just be real about this? Do you know that you sometimes worry in a way that is not actually trusting God? Does that ever happen in your life? How about this one? Do you ever get frustrated at how things are? They didn't go the way that you thought they were and you're mad and you're frustrated. Anybody ever? Okay. All right, how about this one? Do you ever get depressed, a little hopeless, in some degree, about how things are? You know, I just, uh, right, you know, okay. Uh, how about this, do you ever get upset? I get that we're kind of, kind of repeating myself here, but I think it's different, you know, right? There's different ways that we handle this reality that God isn't doing things the way we think he should do them. And therefore, can we trust him, right? So really the question is, how would you like to never again worry, get frustrated, get depressed, or get upset about how things are? Does that sound like a good idea? Anybody want that? Okay, well then listen. <laughs> Pay close attention, because that's where we're headed, all right? Who's our prayer? Eric Lee, this is perfect. Eric Lee is one of our elders. This is a man who I know that you worry and get frustrated and all that kind of stuff, but I also watch over and over and over the degree to which you actually trust God and really do do that. And that's what I think makes you, we don't, we're not the ones that picked you as an elder. God picked you as an elder. And I think that that's one of the things he wants to model to us through you. So please pray for our sermon in another church. Well, God, I know we all uh, can really identify with what Kurt is saying this morning. And, you know, worry and frustration and depression, that's, that's the thing that we fight with every day. So just open up our hearts this morning to hear, to really hear, and to uh, just bathe and marinate in your word that you're going to share with us this morning. Speak through Kurt uh, so that we hear your words coming out of his mouth. And God, I, I pray uh, just for the whole church in America that you would, that you would pour out your spirit on us. Amen. That you would call us back to being what you want us to be. Thank you, God. Amen. 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 Thank you, Eric. I know that that's on your heart, and God will honor that heart. All right, now, we're back to our series Empowered, which this graphic, what this means is the Holy Spirit comes upon to do what only he can do through you. That's what empowered means. That's what we're talking about. Now, what we're doing in this empowered series, and have been for a long time now, is we're looking at Luke, and we're literally going right through Luke and seeing how God discipled the disciples, such as to turn them into people whose lives were totally transformed and who then were used by God to totally transform the world. So we're looking at how God did that with his disciples, Jesus. And we're saying, and what we've been learning is, is that God's doing the same thing with us if we will enter in. You can hear everything that I'm saying and never enter in, and it's not going to make as much of a difference as if you, do, if you follow the pattern. And remember, here's the pattern. The first eight chapters of Luke are essentially what we've called college. And college is a time where you look, watch, and learn. You see what's possible. You didn't think that that was possible. You've now seen him heal somebody. You've now seen him walk on water. You've seen all kinds of stuff. Oh, my gosh, Right? But then you go to master's level, and the key to master's level, and this starts at chapter 9, the key to master's level is simply this. What he's going after is, is you do this stuff now. You heal people. You walk on water. You do these things. Because when that starts to happen, you're learning a lot more, aren't you, than just watching. You're learning not just how to do it, but you're learning what it really is. Now, where we are is, at the end of the, at the, end of the spring, heading into summer, we got to the end of what we might call the formal classwork or the formal time of the master's education. Okay, we were done. 
Then what happens is, what we might call, and what's happening right now, what we're looking at, what we're starting today is, what we would call the culminating experience. How many of you have gotten master's degrees? There's going to be quite a few in here. But the point is, is, if you've gotten a master's degree, you might have to do a thesis or a culminating experience or both. Right? Your thesis might be from a culminating experience. But here's what a culminating experience is. You take everything that you were supposed to have learned and done and everything else, and you go right into the middle of something and you apply it all to see whether or not you actually got it or not. See what I mean? So culminating experience is testing you. Now here's what I want to say. Watch this. See, chapters 9 through 19, roughly, we're still in 19, but 9 through 18 plus, were this time where God was, had them in a master's program. Now we're getting to the last days of Jesus' life, which is called the Passion Week, and which is this time where all kinds of things are going on for all kinds of reasons. Here, Jesus was training up his disciples. Here, he's just dying. Okay? But whenever God's doing one thing, he's always doing more than one thing. So what's happening is, we're looking at this. We can look at these stories right now just from the context of what happened. And we can see what happened. Jesus dies and rises again. And that's awesome, right? The, the biggest thing, the most important thing in all of human history. But the point is we're looking at it from a particular vantage point. We're looking at it as if we're a disciple. So we're going to experience the Passion Week in the same way the disciples experienced the Passion Week because God is using this week to bring a culminating experience to these guys. Or let me, let me change culminating experience because that's such a euphemism for test the heck out of them. And let's be clear, they fail. When he gets arrested, they all scatter. Even after they've heard that he's risen again, they're gathered in an upper room and scared. So they didn't pass. Great master's level training. Yeah, it is, though, because God has been doing things and doing things and doing things, and what he's doing in this culminating week is he's putting a capper on it. He's bringing them into an experience that is going to take them from where it is still about learning and it's still about growing, and all of a sudden it becomes about being. He's going to change them into the kind of people who can handle what's going to happen next, which is he's going to ascend, and now the work of the kingdom is on them. And let me make this clear. Every person that's been listening to this for all these years, you're going to be under this. This is something God is doing with you. If you didn't learn it, I'm not trying to say anything terrible to you, but if you didn't learn it, if you didn't get it, if you can't enter into it, you're not going to extend the kingdom. And that's a problem. That's an issue. That's a real thing. On the other hand, if you're really going along with what God's doing and if you let him get you, and I mean capture you, then he will transform you like he did them from people who tend to fail to people who tend to, oh my gosh. All right? Got it? Now, with that in mind, we're in these last days. So here we are. We're, we're right at Bethany and Bathage right now, and we're headed back down. And I see that's topographical. I don't know if you can see it. But you see when you get to Garden of Gethsemane, Mount of Olives, you go down into the Kidron Valley, and then you come back up again, and you got to switch back up because it's that steep of a climb back up into the temple. See that? So this is this, this, is this journey he's taking. And look at it. It's one mile plus, what is that, maybe a mile and a half total? So this would be like from here to Crossroads. That's what we're talking about and where we will be now for chapters, okay, in the stuff that happens right here, okay? Now, Having said that, I'm going to read the triumphal entry to you, and then we're going to go back and look at something that God was doing that, to the disciples that they didn't even know was happening at the time because they were looking elsewhere, thinking elsewhere, and totally missed what God was doing until after he had died and risen again. And then all of a sudden they looked back and they went, oh my gosh, how much more plain could you have made it? And yet we missed it. So if we're the kind of people who tend to worry when we know that God's in control, is it because we've got our eyes somewhere else and we're missing something key? That if we could reorient ourselves to start seeing that, it, we would find worry and fear and frustration start to melt away. All right? So here goes. 
After telling the story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. Let me say something right here. I think that this is signaling a new moment. See, before it's been walking with. But now his face is set to something that's going to happen that they don't even know. In fact, they would resist if they did know, even though he told them, I'm going to Jerusalem to be betrayed and crucified and then rise again. Told them all of it, but they don't get it. So what's happening right now is they become followers again. They're following and going to watch what happens. But it's going to be experiencing something inside of them because what happens is bad. He doesn't be the king. He bees the sacrifice. So as it came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you'll see a young donkey tied there that no one's ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus said, and sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. And when he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, Ah, if they kept quiet, the stones in the road had burst into cheers. He is the creator of all of the heaven and the earth, and he is here, and he is doing something magnificent, and all of creation cries out. Right? In fact, we in our failure have subjected all of creation to futility, says the scripture, and now it's all being redeemed. Okay? So the, the all of creation is happy. Okay, now, here's what I want you to see. The first thing is this. What are the disciples looking for? Real simple, the king, okay? His followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the miracles they've seen, which made them believe that he's the Messiah. But remember what the Jewish understanding of Messiah is. Blessings on the king. You know, the one that's going to come and raise up Israel as a nation so as to overpower the Roman oppressors and make us the most powerful nation on earth. You know, that king. Blessings on that king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. See, they're thinking of majestic king Messiah who they've made him out to be. Okay? That's their understanding. That's where their sights are. But that's not what's going to happen, is it? That expectation is going to be brutally dashed on a cross. Jesus being beaten. Okay? Now, but now watch this. Remember. Watch what's happening. Remember, the disciples don't get all of this. They get some of it. But it's not as if God didn't put a big highlighter over it to try and get them to get all of it. Watch this. He sent the disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them, and as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there. How did he know that? What the heck? This is a... Do I have sound? Can you give me sound? Okay. Uh, just a second here. What's happening here? Where am I? You got to give me sound. Do I not have sound? Okay, forget it then. It was just a cute little clever thing. It wasn't so clever, apparently. God didn't think it was that clever. All right. Because he is in control, right? So I'm not worried or frustrated or upset. No. <laughs> okay, okay, so all that happens here, do you have it yet? Are we tied in? No? I'm all right if you don't. Just go up or down. Just give me an up or down. Down. Okay. So what I had right here was a do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. And it was quite an irritating one. Okay. It really did set you on edge. Like, like how the heck did he know that there was a cult tied there? How did he know that? Right? And to keep going, how did he know that if somebody asked, that somebody would come up and say, why are you untying the cult? And all they had to say was the Lord needs it. And they would be cool with that. And again, look at what it says. And sure enough, 
You see that? The, the, the language is not that it just happened the way that he said. The language is he prophesied what was going to happen. He saw the cult there somehow, and then he saw the people, and then he saw the response, and he saw what would happen, and sure enough, it all unfolded just like he said. Now, right there, that ought to be a big yellow highlighter through things. You see that? That ought to be a big, this is weird. What's he trying to tell us? See, now they're used to him doing miracles, and this wouldn't be, you know, walking on water might be better than this, so you know what I mean? But you see, he was trying to get their attention. Now watch what would have happened if he had. Watch what they would have seen. Not just that he can foretell a donkey and what would happen and how it would all transpire, but watch this. No one has ever ridden. Why is that important? Yeah, uh, yeah, you, a lot of you know your theology, but I've got to take a second and just redo it because I want to get us all right into the right place. Now watch this. The wages of sin is death. Here's what that means, real simple. Let's just be, okay. Here's what death actually is. There is God who is life and created us. And as long as we're in touch with him, as long as we're connected to him, then we have life. As soon as we separate from him, then we are dead. We don't have life anymore. That's the proper definition. We think of death as six feet under. God thinks of death as being separated from me. Because remember, six feet under doesn't really matter either way, right? You, you die and either you're separated from him, in which case you stay separated from him for eternity, or you're with him, in which case you resurrect and are with him. So the six feet under means nothing, really. That's not the proper definition of death. The proper definition of death is what every one of us does when we worry. When we decide to go our own way and take care of things our own way instead of the way that God has. When we make a decision to move away from him. You don't think of that as sin. You think of these bad things as sin. But what he's saying is, is I have something for you. And anytime you're not walking in what I have for you, you've turned and you've, you've separated yourself and you are dead. And now there needs to be a death paid in order to reconcile again. And so here's what God did before Jesus. He set up what we call the sacrificial system. This is the tabernacle. This is 1,500 years before Jesus. The Israelites are in as slaves in Egypt. Now they get delivered. They go through the Red Sea. They're at the mount, and God starts talking to them, and he says this. He says, look, you guys keep making these choices to walk away from me, but I want you to be my people, so I'm going to make a way back for you. And that way back is going to be that an innocent animal should die for you. Now let's be clear about something. God is not bloodthirsty. He hates that an innocent animal is having to die for you, and he wants us to hate it. He wants us to be grieved that an innocent animal had to die for the ways in which I walked away from him. See, that, that's what he's looking for. That's what he wants. That's what the sacrificial system is. But here's a key to that. See, is it really fair that an animal should die for you and I in the decisions we made? particularly an innocent animal that didn't do anything wrong. That's not really fair, is it? God made a way for that to happen, but it doesn't keep. There's literally a thing they call the scapegoat. And the once a year that they do it, they take two goats, they cast lots, they kill one of the goats, they take the blood from that goat, sprinkle it on the altar, but then they also sprinkle it on the head of what's called the scapegoat. That's a word we still use today. And what they're doing in the scapegoat is they say, now, chase that goat out into the wilderness for a year because he's going to take our sins away from us for a year until the perfect lamb comes, the perfect sacrifice comes, right? And what is that? Jesus. He's the perfect lamb. He's the one that fulfills all the sacrifices. He fulfills all the sacrifices that were done before, and all the, all the sin that was done after, all the sins done before looked to him, and all the sins look, done after looked back at the cross. See that? Now, we all, I hope we all know this, or at least most of us know this, and if you don't, welcome, and I hope this is a day that you'll meet the Lord, okay? Because this is really cool stuff. Now, what happens is, though, is there's a key. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Here's what he is not, and here's what God does not accept as an animal sacrifice. 
Well, I've been using that ox for the last 10 years and he's all broken down and everything else, so I'll go ahead and use him for the sacrifice. Or it has a defect, so it's not gonna be any good to me, so I'll use that for the sacrifice. He doesn't use that for the sacrifice. He says, I want it to be a perfect animal, not even have a blemish. But not only not have a blemish, there's one other thing. This is the legal, now what, this is the law of purification and do you understand what that means? That means cleansing. What does Jesus do for us on the cross? Cleanses. Taking our sin upon himself, he cleanses us. So the law of purification, this is the biggest single one. This is said in many other places about many other sacrifices. But this is the one that means the most. It's the unusual red heifer. This is the legal statute the Lord has commanded. Instruct the Israelites to bring you an unblemished red cow that has no defect and has never been yoked. See, this is something that costs me. This is a perfect animal, unblemished, no defect. This is an animal that could have brought me great profit. But I haven't even worked it yet. It's clean, pure. This is the one. This is signifying Jesus not having done any sin. He was the, right? Now watch this. That no one has ever ridden. Now, now watch what the disciples could have gotten out of this moment. He's, well, you'll see it even more when I get a little bit further, but he's riding on a donkey. In fact, it's not just a donkey. It's a young donkey a colt that's never been ridden. He's the sacrifice. I thought he was the king come to deliver us. Well, he is doing that, but not from the Romans, from the law of sin and death. He's delivering me in a much more profound way than I ever had any imagination. He's the purification. He's the one without blemish. He's the one that has never been yoked, that has never been captured by. See it? So they could have got this. Now, it's not just that that they could have got. Let's just keep going a little bit. A donkey and a colt. Watch this. You've got 1,500 years before Jesus, you've got, or 2,000 years before Jesus, you've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, father of faith, the one that he called out, gave promises to, then Isaac, and then Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. At the end of Jacob's life, he pronounces a prophecy over every one of those 12, one of which he even switches his hands. But what he does is, is he says to Judah, the fourth prophecy, the fourth son, what he does is, the, the kingship should have gone to the firstborn. It didn't. He disqualified himself, by the way, by selling, well, whatever. But it goes on, and then it goes to the next one, and then it goes to the next one. And then it finally comes to Judah. And here's what he says about Judah. This is the prophecy. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. No, the father's sons bow down to the firstborn. But he's saying, no, it's going to be this fourthborn that's going to be the one who overcomes enemies, which is what a what does. It's what a king does. Okay? And they're going to bow down to you. In fact, he goes further and he says, Judah's a young lion, strong, mighty, the scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet. Here's what he's saying. When a king assumes a throne, he takes on a scepter, which is a sign of the authority and the power of being able to rule that land. And it is literally, if you're going to rule that land, you have to pry that scepter out of the king's cold, dead hand. See it? The one with the scepter is the one that has the power, that has the authority. This is the one that people recognize as being the king. Okay, so what he's saying is, is that it's from the tribe of Judah that all the kings of Israel will come. And sure enough, for the, for the northern ten on the first ones, and then for the southern, it's always somebody from the line of Judah, right? In fact, even to the point that Jesus is born when it says this. I don't know what's happening. 
until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the people belongs to him. Until whose right comes. Until the right one comes. Until the one comes. And who's that? Jesus. King Jesus. He's the one where the scepter will never depart. Okay? It departs from David, Solomon, all these guys die. But not Jesus. Now again, we know most of this, but just keep watching. You're going to like this. Now watch. Right here in this prophecy, he says something weird. What's this got to do with anything? He ties his donkey to a vine and the colt of his donkey to the choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. Now there's a ton of imagery happening right here. And the first level I hope you get is the blood of grapes. This is Jesus having all of this death and destruction and all of this stuff, treading down the wrath of God, the wine press, okay? This is his blood that gets shed instead of ours. And he's washing us clean in doing that. See? So it's said right there. See it? Washing in the wine, blood of the grapes. The imagery is very strong there. But there's another layer of the imagery that's in there. What king rides on a donkey? Either a very weak king or a king that has brought incredible prosperity and peace to his land. A king that has to worry about stuff has to ride a big horse, has to ride in a chariot armored. A king of peace can ride a donkey to a choice vine. How long does it take for a vine to become profitable and fruitful? Years. See it? It takes years for that vine to become something that can be. And what's being said is, is there's so much wine that he can wash his clothes in it. You see what it's saying? It's working on two different levels as to the imagery of who this king is. On the one hand, he is the most powerful king, and it's talking about the blood that's going to be spilled, his own blood, and so on. But all of this, it's also a very much a picture of peace. Now, some of you may be saying, I think you're pulling a little too much out of this, Kurt. Well, let me just show you something here. Rejoice, O people of Zion, says the prophet. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey. In fact, riding on a donkey's colt. Here's what these disciples could have gotten out of this moment had they picked up on the fact that God was putting a highlighter through something. Here's what they could have picked up. First of all, that Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen, and he tells them. There's a colt. He's tied up. People are going to say something to you. Here's what you say to him. You can bring it back to me. Jesus knows what's going to happen. But here's what's also being said. I'm the one that purifies you. I'm the one that delivers you at a level and a depth that you don't even understand. I'm the perfect sacrifice. They could have got this from that moment right then. And not just that, but I am truly a king, but not the king you think. Not a warrior king. I bring peace, reconciliation. I bring blessing, abundance. See it? They could have got all this. Now, if you're a disciple and you're about to freak out by watching him die, do you think maybe that seeing this would have helped you? Do you think maybe that it would have made a difference to you that you really understood about the donkey and the colt? Let me say it this way. God is completely, here's what God is trying to say in this moment right now to them and to us. God is completely and utterly, totally and absolutely in control of absolutely everything at absolutely every moment. And let me ask you a question now. If you're a disciple, now here, now watch. The disciples did not understand this at the time that it happened. So when did they come to understand it? Because by the wording here, it's clear that they do. They're using language on purpose that they know to be speaking to the things that they saw and just didn't understand at the time. When did they come to understand it? We don't know, 
But what we do know is Jesus had died and was risen again. And either during that time he told them, or I like to think more accurately what happened was the Holy Spirit inside of them just quickened them. And they started to get a revelation of, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. All that stuff was happening right in front of us. And we didn't see it. Now let me ask you a question. If you're about to be a disciple where Jesus is going to ascend and you're going to be doing this on your own, do you think that it might be comforting to know this? Do you think that when they discovered this, they might have been deeply comforting and assuring to those who were now doing ministry on their own to know that God is completely and utterly, totally and absolutely in control of absolutely everything at absolutely every moment. When they get this revelation, can you see it? They come into this thing that just goes, oh, there's so much more going on than what I understand. I need to empty myself of my understanding. I need to become a vessel of his to fill and an instrument of his to be wielded by his hand in a fine way. Because when I do that, God is doing so much more than I can even begin to understand. Afterwards, I will come to understand it. But I just need to not get in his way. I need to be used. Do you think that that was helpful to those guys? And if it was, do you think that it's helpful to us now? You know what's cool about God? You know what's amazing about God? There's so much, but you know, watch this. Here's what God does. He doesn't just leave us with that one story that we can pull all these gems out of and see how totally controlled he is. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't say, well, now that you've seen it, you know it. He does college. He lets us see it. But then what's he do? The master's program. He lets us experience it. That we might be equipped to go be and do it. Watch. Here. Look. Do you ever worry about anything? Do you ever go, if you really got in, in your heart completely that God is utterly and truly and totally and completely just in every way in control. Right? We know that that would change our lives, but watch what God does to change our lives. I assure you, the one who believes in me will do the works that I do. This work includes being able to walk into a situation where you know things in advance that have happened. I've told you before of a period of my life that lasted for about, I think it was almost nine months, where every single meeting that I walked into, and at that point in time, I had a lot of meetings that had a lot of stuff that was happening between the meetings. I was running a company, and we, there were all kinds of decisions being made and so on. And I would literally, on the car, I'd be praying before a meeting, and God would drop into my heart, not, he would drop into my heart everything that had happened between the last meeting and this one, things I would have no way of knowing about. Decisions that had been made or offers that had been put in on other pieces of property and all this kind of stuff. He, you know, I would know, I would walk in the meeting and they would say, they would have their faces down, they'd kind of go, oh. And I would say, no, here's what happened. So-and-so put an offer in at this, but here's what's gonna happen with it. It's not gonna be a problem, don't worry about it. And this is what's gonna happen next and this is why we're gonna do what we're gonna do. And I'm telling you, people got saved because of that. People saw that happening and they went, how did you know that? And I went, well, I was in the car praying and God told me what had happened. And then he would tell me everything that would happen in the meeting so that I knew exactly what would happen in the meeting. And this happened for months. Greater works than these will you do. Now watch something here. Is that because the Holy Spirit's in us? Because that's pretty cool, right? The angel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The baby will be born and be called the Son of the Most High, meaning the, where did, when did Jesus get the Holy Spirit in him? From birth. Not birth, excuse me, from conception. From the very moment he had the Holy Spirit inside of him, right? When do we get the Holy Spirit inside of us? Well, I assure you, unless someone's born of the water, which means natural birth, and the Spirit, born again, this is John 3, born again. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. And here's what Jesus tells us in John 14. I will ask the Father. He'll give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth who remains with you and will be in you. Now, that Holy Spirit brings us incredible revelation, guidance, help, and everything else, right? It's amazing to live life with the Holy Spirit helping you if you listen to him, right? It's amazing. But even then, God doesn't quit. 
Even then he brings us another whole layer of it. When did Jesus start following the Spirit? He was always obeying, right? But when did he actually start doing the signs and the wonders, the things where God was doing things through him? Because remember, he was man. He didn't do the miracles. He did as God. He did them as man. When did he get that? At his baptism, as soon as he came up out of the water, Jesus, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. The Spirit descends on him like a dove, and now the things that he's doing are because the Holy Spirit's doing them through him. See it? And when does that happen for us? When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a mighty rushing wind came from heaven. It filled the whole house where they were staying. Tongues like flame of fire were divided, appeared on them, rested on them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they begin their ministry, a ministry which, by the way, God had said 10 days earlier, don't leave Jerusalem until you've been empowered. But now here's the point that I'm going after. This is empowered. This is the Holy Spirit coming upon us to do things through us. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever prayed for anybody to be healed and they got healed? Did that make a difference in you? Did it seem, when, when God does something you know you can't do, <laughs> but he does it, does that make you trust him more? Does it? It does. When we are letting the Holy Spirit do what only he can do through us, then we experience things that make us realize in the deepest possible way that God is completely and utterly, totally and absolutely in control of absolutely everything at absolutely every moment. Right? This is how it works. When we actually become his instruments finely wielded in his hands, when we actually empty ourselves that he might fill and that we might be doing his will, not ours, then we see things and God does things through us that make us go, oh my gosh, you're so much more in control of everything than I ever had any imagination about. How can I get more empty that you might fill me more? Do you see it? It's beautiful. It's beautiful what God does. And let me just leave you with one last thing, and then we're going to do something really fun. A donkey. If, I, if I'm going to be a king, I'm going to want to make sure everybody knows it. So I'm going to come in with the horses raging and the crowds cheering and the bounty flowing and the, you know, power. You see it? That's how I'm coming into town. Because that's what makes sense. That's when people might actually believe I am a king because inside I know better. But here's how Jesus comes in. Who's more powerful? The one that needs to show or the one that doesn't? Who's more in control? The one who's at peace or the one who's got to be puffing it up and bluffing it up all the time? See, it says about Zechariah that he's coming humble. It says that he's bringing us in Genesis peace. It says that he's bringing it in a way where, let me just put it this way. Is God trying to get us to live in a simple, uncomplicated trust where we truly know that God is completely, utterly, totally, and absolutely in control of absolutely everything at absolutely every moment. This isn't a loud, conjured thing that you have to support with your zeal, enthusiasm, and passion, and woe to you for the day that you slip. This is a trust that is in the deepest, quietest moments. That's the trust that's there when the chips really get, when stuff really gets tough. See it? That's the trust that lasts and that keeps you in peace. Let me say it this way. The peace of God which passes all understanding guards your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. There's a peace of God. And, and so, sorry about the pun, but 
Isn't that the peace of God that God is trying to get us to understand right now? One of total trust. Okay, the two guys that I asked and Becca, come on up here. Okay, we're going to do something right now. Come on up. Yeah, come on up. Michelle, come on up. Okay, where's, where's my other one? There you go. Okay, come on up. Okay, anybody know what a trust fall is? All right, okay. Now, I'm going to show you what a trust fall is, and here's why. Because in a couple of minutes, I'm going to ask everybody to get up and do trust falls. Now, if you're scared of this and you don't want to do this or you're just afraid or you have some health issue or something like that, I love you, no problem, you don't have to do it, okay? But here's, here's what happened. I was praying about this sermon and I was saying, God, you want people to trust you. you. You want them to trust you. You want them to walk out of here trusting you. And I said, how am I going to get people to where they feel that trust? Not just from a sermon so they got it in their head, but where they feel it in their body, what it is to trust. So... Then I got this idea, and I think it was from God. You'll have to figure it out for yourself, okay? But we're going to do a trust fall, so you guys know what to do. I want to show you one so that you can see it. So come over here. Come over here. Well, I don't know. We're going to figure it out. Come on over here, Michelle. You got to help, okay? Okay, right there. Are we doing it wrong? I don't either. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to do the trust fall, okay? I want you to see what it looks like. Now, you go down a little bit more so that... And, and remember, hey, let me put it this way. If they can catch me, they can catch you guys. Okay? All right? So what you do is you just close your eyes, and you fold your hands, and then you say a lot of prayers, pray in the Spirit, pray in tongues a lot. And then, and then when you're ready, look over your, okay, when you're ready, just fall. No, no, don't catch me so quick. <laughs> Here. I'm going to go a little bit. I want you to do it. Do it. Don't catch me right, in, right away. you got to let me fall a little bit, okay? So now we're not, nobody, don't, be, don't take it all the way down to the floor where somebody gets hurt, okay? We're doing safe things here, okay? All right. So here we go. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we probably should have put the guys in front, but you see, they can do it, Okay. All right, do you see what we're doing? Now, you guys stay up here because you're going to do it up here. I'm really quite serious about this, okay? We're not done, so please don't leave. It's only going to take about 10 minutes, but I really want you in groups of five or six to just gather right now around the congregation. If you don't want to do it yourself, it's okay. Just tell people. Nobody's going to give you a hard time. But I want you to feel what I felt right there. When you actually are falling backwards, there's something in you that says, I don't like this. This isn't okay. But then you get caught. And you go, you know what? It's okay. I can give myself to him. So I want you to do this as unto the Lord. Okay? And please, make sure nobody gets hurt. Okay? So, all right, stand up. Move around. Okay? All right. Okay? Who's next? I'll go next. Yes. Yeah. Okay? Okay. So... So we got to go down more, okay? No, you just go down there and I can just go up the steps. Okay, here. Here, down a little bit more. Okay. Okay, yeah. We're ready. We got this. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Okay, you go ahead. What's that? Thousand marks I 
Let's go ahead and gather around. Okay, go, I mean, go ahead and sit down again, okay? What's that? <laughs> yeah. Okay. There you go. That's right. You get him a little further away. <laughs> All right. All right. What? Yeah, yeah. All right, everybody, let's gather up. I want you to take that feeling and take it home with you. Thank you, love you. I want you to take that feeling and I want you to take it home with you. What is it to trust God, right? What is it to trust God? He's got you. You may feel like you're falling, you may be losing it, but the fact of the matter is he's got you. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, we take these cups that are in front of us. And what we ask you for, what we say to you is, by not trusting you, we have broken our lives about as much as any single thing that we've done, each one of us, at every part of our lives. By not trusting you, by having our eyes on something else, we end up doing something else <laughs> than what you have. But in Jesus' holy and precious name, as we come to you knowing that we have broken ourselves by not trusting you, we say, God, thank you for healing us. And in Jesus' holy and precious name, we put our finger down in there to, to signify this lack of trust, the way that it has broke us. And then we take this cup to our lips knowing that you're the one who took that upon yourself. And you're showing us that we can trust you. So in Jesus' holy and most incredible name, we take this cup to have you heal us that we might trust you in everything evermore. In Jesus' name, truly God, we know that it'll be a journey, but get us there. You who begun this good work in us is, are faithful to eat it. So in Jesus' name, take this cup together. Heal me, Lord. And now, God, we know that there, the life is in the blood and the life that you have for us is one of incredible trust. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, we lift this cup and we say as we drink it, God, bring me into a life of utter trust. In Jesus' holy and precious name. Thank you, ushers, for coming forward. 